Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Eric Trules. Before we get to Eric, I want to make a few announcements, starting with the website. That is, of course, TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there. Uh, check out photos of our guests. See some stories that I've written, some that the guests have written, and also see links to their social media and our social media. And that is, of course, Twitter. You can follow us at Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. Instagram, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, and our Facebook page. There's links to that, which is Travel Tales Podcast, and of course, links to Stitcher Radio, where you can subscribe to the show, and iTunes. And if you're on iTunes, I ask all the time, please give us a good rating because that boosts our presence there and helps more people find the show, and that's a cool thing. If you want to write me, it's Travel Tales Podcast at gmail.com. Travel Tales Podcast at gmail.com. Eric Trules is the host and creator of the E Travels with E Trules podcast. And he contacted me, and I was glad he did because I ended up being a guest on his show. I went to meet him at his cool house in Echo Park, which has a killer view, and I'm a, always a sucker for a killer view. And we went to the studio where he records, Barbershop Studios, and we recorded an episode of his podcast where I was the guest, and then we flipped the table, and he was a guest on my podcast, and that's the interview you're going to hear now. And I like Eric's uh, podcast because in between his interviews, which are kind of like this one where he goes one-on-one with uh, travelers. His podcast is really a storytelling podcast, and uh, we love a good travel tale here on Travel Tales. And Eric is a performance artist, a longtime performance artist and actor and uh, professor at USC, and uh, he's, he's really a performer. And that's what his show is. If you listen to his podcast, he uses music, he tells a story, he uses sound effects and everything else and weaves uh, a tale, a travel tale which is really up our alley here, of course. So find them. You can go to ericTrules.com. That's E-R-I-C-T-R-U-L-E-S.com. And then you'll find his podcast and his bio and everything else that uh, he's done. And check out E-Travels with E-Trules. I enjoyed my time meeting Eric, and I hope you will too. Please enjoy my conversation with Eric Trules. Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are changing Eric Trules of the New York Trules. Is Trules short for something? Uh, it's got to it, be, right? It is. It's one of those stories where... Ellis my, Island, they shortened that, it. You got it. My grandfather <laughs> came over from someplace near Odessa. Yep. It was called Kharkov in the Ukraine. Uh, we always called it Russia until we found out, until Ukraine became its own country. And uh, Meyer, some long name starting with the T-R-U, was left with uh, six letters on the uh, Ellis Island sign-in sheet. And we became trolls. <laughs> so you grew up in New York City. 
a New York City kid. I was born in Queens Hospital, but then um, uh, G.I. Joe, my uh, my dad, who fought in World War uh, II as an airplane mechanic, and uh, his bride, Roz, uh, had their first son, me, and they moved to the first suburb in America called... Levittown. One of the few people can answer that question. <laughs> uh, it's funny, because I just talked to someone who was reading a book on Robert Moses. Oh. Who shaped you know, New York City? Yeah, and around that time, you know, around the fifties and everything, there was this exodus out of the city, and you, the suburbs were this new shining place, and they built these giant uh, freeways that were going to lead people out of the city, and they kind of, like a lot of cities around the U.S., they just kind of left the inner city to rot, and all the money left, and uh, they, a lot of the places in the cities never recovered. But And, and, uh, and they called that place in 1947 with Levittown and Syosset and Westbury, where we moved to, they called that Long Island. Long Island. That's right. The... Um, uh, that's just like the the stereotypical quintessential boomer story. Like your your parent, your dad came home from the war. They started a family, moved to the suburbs. That's it. And he took the Long Island Railroad into the city on 40th and Broadway in the garment industry, which uh, fellow Jews called the Schmata business, business, right? Until they, now Asia that makes all the clothes. <laughs> well, things have changed. Yeah, uh, but uh, I was supposed to become their son, the doctor. Uh, and every one of my high school classmates uh, who uh, on my street, we started at the top of the street with Sigmund, Silverman, Fisherman, Trules, Reese, Rubin, and Schwartz. And then one O'Malley. Somehow. No, there was no O'Malley. Oh, that's not true. We had a Covington. Oh. Warring Covington. He was the band leader uh, for the Joe Franklin show or something like that. And uh, his son, Donnie Covington, was the only wrestler on the street. <laughs> so we fast forward. So you're a child of the 50s. You grow up. And then now it's the 60s. Yeah. And uh, things are changing. Well, the, and the time. you grew that... your hair out. Got crazy. Did I, you move? Did you stay in the city? Yeah, I don't even think you read anything about me. I think you just know the story. You know, that's exactly what happened. Uh, well, I know you're a, you're an actor or a performance artist. Basically. Now I'm a performance artist. But here's my uh, little brief story uh, of that era anyway. Uh, the times, they were a-changing. That's what Bob Dylan said. <laughs> yep. And that was 62, 3, 4. Uh, the girl I had a crush on uh, in high school. Uh became sort of a beatnik and she went into Greenwich Village to see Dylan sing at the Cafe Wa and her boyfriend became uh, uh, the flute player for the Blues Project on Bleecker Street, you know, <laughs> uh, and I was left behind so that when I went to college at the University of Buffalo and it became 66, 67, and uh, I first uh, tried to expand my mind which certainly needed expansion. It was so rigid and so set with other people's ideas of becoming a doctor and materialism and having uh, two cars and 2.2 kids. and uh, The American dream. Yeah, following uh, the white picket fence of my parents' imagination. But uh, once the mind was expanded with a little help from my friends – uh, friends I, being LSD, are these the uh, initials of your friends? Lucy in the sky with diamonds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I no longer aspired towards any of it. And uh, I dropped calculus twice and physics three times. And I said, 
I don't want to become a doctor. I don't know what I want, but uh, there are sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And although I wasn't very good at the sex for a long time, uh, I did uh, buy uh, the alternative culture that my generation bought into. And we didn't want to conform and we didn't want to be part of the convention. We wanted to reinvent society and grow our hair long and wear jeans and uh, stop the war and uh, maybe make a positive effect on civil rights and uh, although there was hypocrisy with our uh, uh, womanizing and things like that, I think we did help stop the war and get uh, Nixon impeached. And uh, that's the generation I'm from. And in my 31-year career as a professor at USC, they allowed me to stand on whatever soapbox I brought or invented with me. And I try to challenge my students with the most important things that I discovered in my life, which were self-expression and creativity. Uh, and that's always what I try to hand my students, the tools and courage to find their own voice and follow their own path, because that's the path I've been on. Uh, I've done so many unconventional things <laughs> from uh, be, uh, run for mayor of New York City as a clown against Ed Koch in 1977, finishing Fifth out of four candidates. Who did you beat? Oh, no. Fifth out of four. That's right. Wait a minute. That's right. <laughs> Bada boom. Fifth out of four candidates. You got it. So did, uh, how did you get out of the uh, – did you get a lottery number on the draft? Did you – 293 out of six, 365. Uh, a lot of my friends left the country. They went to the London School of Economics and moved to Canada. And uh, amazingly, they were forgiven their uh, fleeing the draft, but nobody knew back then. And uh, on my first year upon graduation, on that draft night with the ping pong balls, I stood in front of the TV and uh, somewhere between trembling and uh, sweating, I saw my ping pong ball come up 293, which allowed me not to flee the country, not to get a draft deferment by going to any kind of school or teaching uh, elementary school somewhere, but I got in my car, a 1964 Pontiac Tempest. Sweet well, ride. It was Gas was what, 10 cents a gallon maybe? 31 cents Ooh. in 1970. And that car's name was Wolfie, named after Steppenwolf from the Herman <laughs> Hess novel. And I drove up and down the country like it was one big map for six months, from New York down to the Florida Keys, up through Tallahassee and uh, Muhammad Ali's home in Louisville and Bob Dylan's home in Hibbing, Minnesota. And I stopped in every place I ever heard of and many places I never heard of. And I ended up in Chicago looking up this uh, high school crush, mm -hmm. second time she's on my conversation. Uh, and she was then married to an Amish conscientious objector, which kept him out of the war. But she lived in Old Town, Chicago, which you oh, probably yeah. know from your time. I'll be there uh in August uh, 13th through 15th at Zany's Comedy Club on Well Street. And on Well Street, I think the address was 1760 or something like that, there was uh, the theater company in residence uh, from uh, Columbia College, Chicago. And I climbed the steps into this big open room where they were rehearsing Naked Lunch by William Burroughs. Oh, boy. I had long hippie hair, <laughs> and they had a character – named Abby Hoffman, based on the 68 convention, Yippie. And the, as soon as they saw me, they said, are you an actor? 
And I said, uh... Well, you are now. Uh, that's right. You want to play Abby Hoffman and Naked Lunch by William Burroughs? And I said, uh, give me a day. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I didn't take the job, but right in the lobby was an audition sign for a modern dancer. This company had just lost its one and only male dancer. And I was this volcano waiting to explode and very physical and athletic. And I became a modern dancer for the next seven years, from 1970 to 77 in Chicago, Illinois. Wow. It changed my life. That must have been something. The old Mary Daly, Mary Daly days. Dick Daly. Dick Daly. Yeah. Um, did uh, So where were you living in Chicago? And is, was, was that first trip in the Pontiac the where the start of the travel bug? I'd say, yeah, I think I took a little conventional uh, ski trip to Innsbruck, Austria when I was in college, but that was part of the convention bubble and the little package deal. But that uh, first trip right after college was my taking the road less traveled, which ended up in Chicago, and I ended up living 100% on the near north side, a little east, little east, no, a little west of the lake. I lived on Halstead and Diversity. Okay. I, was, uh, I used to live around Belmont and Racine. Our dance company uh, called Mo Ming was at Belmont and Sheffield, right near yeah, the, quiet exactly night, the Quiet Night. The Quiet Night. Quiet Night. A lot of people played at the Quiet Night. Yeah. Famous place. Yeah. So Chicago, seven years. When did you start getting really around the world? When did that happen? Like overseas? <laughs> Even Were you a backpacker? Were you that guy? Like I, I was not a hippie or a backpacker. I was an artist and a believer in the alternative culture and the power and transcendence of art. So even in Chicago, uh, I'll bet you heard of the Kingston Mines Theater. Sure, it's still I there. it's still there, yeah. Blues Club. So, so uh, I was uh, in this dance company and sort of a man about town uh, just for being uh, in the alternative dance culture. And uh, the ridiculous theater company, which uh, did these gay drag shows, came to Chicago and they cast me uh, in a show called The Whores of Babylon, where I played Samson to three Delilahs, two in drag. And it was a great late night sensation at midnight uh, all summer long. And then that company and that show went to Paris. So I went in the summer, I think, of 72 uh, and it was my first experience of traveling with my work. And that's the best way to travel. Uh, it's one of the best ways to travel. What's wonderful about it is that you've been recognized often or invited to do your work. You're given a hotel. They want to hear your story. They treat you well with respect. I premiered my documentary uh, feature film about my relationship with my criminal uncle. This was an autobiographical uh, feature-length film called The Poet and the Con. I premiered that in Switzerland in 1998. I went twice to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as a solo performer in 1988, where my show was nominated for Best Show of the Fringe. And I went again in 1995. So... I've been traveling quite a bit under the privilege of bringing my work around the world. I had a couple of Fulbright grants, which allowed me to teach in uh, Malaysia, in Romania, on the island of Borneo with these kids coming from the little village kampongs. What were you teaching them? Solo performance, how to tell their own stories. But isn't storytelling, it's in every single culture, right? And it's one of the oldest forms of 
performance. Maybe the oldest, probably. You will not get an argument from me on that. But listen to this, Mike. Uh, those stories are about the magical crocodiles and the talking uh, monkeys in on the island of Borneo and Mount Kinabalu. They're traditional tales. And what Asian culture, particularly uh, in the last many millennium when the culture has turned primarily Muslim, is very much not about personal storytelling. In fact, the whole culture is not about personal about person. It's about conformity to the religion, to the community, to the family. Uh, and so when I would ask these students to raise their hand or have an idea or be themselves, this was really foreign. And I found myself being really American, representing my country just the way the Fulbright grant was paying me to do in teaching these people my colleagues, the kids, the culture, uh, about uh, the power of personal voice and storytelling and being oneself. And it was uh, confronting and confusing to this culture that was so foreign to it. Well, were the local leaders, the religious leaders or anything, to think of you as a threat? I mean, if you were going to you know, put new ideas in their heads, a lot of times they don't want that. They very well might have, uh, Mike. And I was uh, a stranger in a strange land. When I came to uh, the island of Borneo in East Malaysia in January of 2002, just a few months after 9-1-1, they had images on their screensavers next to me. My colleagues had images of Osama bin Laden as the most powerful man in the world, uh, the most uh, uh, respected and famous man in the world, because he had stood up to the most powerful country, Goliath, America, and he was their uh, hero, mm -hmm. David. And that was shocking to me. But I realized that I was no longer the center of the world. And I had to try to understand where other people come from. So uh, that was uh, difficult for me, even though I'm not a, a patriot. I'm more an expatriate by personality and, <laughs> and nature. But uh, to see uh, bin Laden's image, and uh, I was teaching at two Islamic universities, one uh, in Borneo, and then I came back to the capital for another four months in Kuala Lumpur, particularly in the outback uh, in, in the island of Borneo. It was uh, very uh, far uh, from anything that I knew in America. And I had to be really open-minded and uh, a little bullheaded at the same time to believe that what I had to offer was a value to these people. And uh, I'm still in touch with many of those students. So I believe it was. How long were you there? I was in uh, Malaysia uh, for four months on the island of Borneo and the northeast coast in a city called Kota Kinabalu, where I, I tell some travel tales. Yes, on this. I heard your story about the uh, the bucket brigade. Oh yeah, yeah, that was the what the British did on the island of Borneo with their steam engine and their railroad, <laughs> which of course when I went on it broke down, and uh, we had to pour steam into the <laughs> engine from these blue plastic buckets. But uh, one of the great things about traveling. Uh, 
and not working too hard as a Fulbright scholar is that I got to stay in the long houses of indigenous people. I got to see turtles uh, give birth and lay their eggs on turtle islands. I got to see uh, orangutans rehabilitated in uh, animal rehabilitation centers. And it was uh, brilliant uh, and full all on my country's dime of uh, renting me a car and paying me to pass along what I genuinely thought were American ideas. So in terms of Asia, I know your wife is... is uh, Indonesian. Is this where you met her? I met her on a solo trip. I went with my friend who I call El Mario, a Latino dude from <laughs> uh, Los Angeles who's traveled a lot. And we went to Bangkok in 2000. Uh, his goal was to end up in uh, Cambodia at the temples at Angkor Wat that were tough to get to in 2000. We took some dangerous uh, transportation there with uh, the Khmer Rouge still shooting at each other yeah. uh, in Cambodia. And in uh, 2011, I just flew in. I'll bet easy. you did. I'll bet they were. Well, <laughs> I could, reap. You could see that the, that was starting to happen, but it wasn't available when mm -hmm. uh, we arrived. So we separated ways after Angkor Wat, and uh, I went all throughout Southeast Asia for about two months by myself. And uh, my goal was to finally end on the magical island of Bali, uh, where I was going to avoid the tourist capital called Kuta Beach. Yeah, that one's that's a yes. bad one. So Just I, drunken Australian kids and, surfing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took uh, literally an, a taxi from the airport to the cultural capital in the center of the island called Ubud. Ubud. But on the way back. I had to fly out the next morning, so I stayed in Kuta Beach in a hotel, and in front of an ATM bank, turning around asking for directions, I asked the first two people for directions, and one of them turned out to be my future wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. Wow. How was she adjusted to America, and what was uh, – because I hear – I've – friends who's married or met women overseas, especially from Asia, it's not easy for them to get a visa, right? To come over? Or Depends when they tried. I don't think it's ever easy, but I, she came, we met in 2000. I worked for about six months to get her a visa and she arrived on August 3rd, 2001, about a month before 911 from Indonesia, timing. the most most populous Muslim country in the world. So she probably would not have received a visa wow. after 911, but she received a five year multi entry visa because I wrote the consul general in <laughs> Indonesia and I said, listen, man, you know, I'm 54 and I know I'm supposed to apply for a fiancé visa saying that I will marry this girl within six months, but the visa will only be good for six months. But Come on, I know you're an, a, a, an adult of my years. How about not putting the pressure on me and just, I don't know if I want to marry her after six months, you know, just let her come, you know, give me a break. And he did. And he gave, <laughs> he gave her a five-year, multi-year <laughs> visa entry. And this has been the probably the longest, most incredible trip journey of my life, watching my wife come from not speaking English 
from a third world, uh, pretty primitive uh, family and culture in Sumatra to take ESL classes uh, in Los Angeles, uh, meet all her fellow immigrants, stand on immigration lines in front of 300 uh, Spring Street downtown and do all the uh, legal work. I did all the application work to get her the sequence of uh, of I-94s and green card and yeah. two years waiting to finally become a citizen seven years later. But that was a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's great. A beautiful that's thing. That's great. Did you know her language when you were there? No, very little. What so I, how did you communicate at all if she didn't know English and you didn't know her language? Well, Mike uh, – Few, well, the few, universal language of love, of course, I think. Yes, but know. the universal language <laughs> of the need to communicate. Yeah. Plus, I used to be a clown ah. and, and, and never spoke. So uh, I am able to uh, communicate well. And uh, she was patient enough and curious and hungry enough to learn English that she would spend – Days and who knows weeks and just writing a simple email at first mm-hmm. uh, before I went back to Bali and uh, met her for a second time. But these two people met at a very synchronistic time in their lives <laughs> on the planet by accident. And 17 years later, uh, we're still together. That's great. But to watch her transformation from what I said, non-English speaking, 31 years, my junior, not knowing who Bob Dylan or Richard Nixon were, <laughs> you know, this was a challenge. And But for her, it was a transformation. And she's still under 40, but she's coming into her stride. As I retire, she's working hard. She's reading books on economics now that she didn't understand <laughs> the English before and I never understood the economics. But uh, she's really uh, taking over the driving wheel for me. As I age and she ages, you know, I'm on the way out. Yeah. And, she, and she's still on the way up. Well, you're giving uh, me hope here. You yeah. Know, yeah, Because I man. haven't settled down yet and it's like, you know, any age it can happen. Any no. age. And in any place, apparently. And it sounds and it sounds like you're ready. A- after being uh, that artistic, uh, yeah. irreverent guy and uh, having uh, too many relationships, I found after enough travel, particularly travel, that I had no one to share my travel stories with. I'd just been to all these places that I could remember. Well, let's go back to that. I mean, what are some of the – just give me – you've been to so many places. A few that stand out in your mind. Have you ever had any real, like, scary incidents? Have you ever uh, get thrown in jail? Any uh, – come across uh, tough cops? Any bribes thrown around? Bribes are common in Southeast Asia, yeah. so I've had my share. But <laughs> here's a good tuk-tuk uh, story since you've mentioned tuk-tuks. And uh, yeah. that's a, a, usually a pedaled uh, little rickshaw. The rickshaws used to be pulled by Asians, not only Chinese, but all over uh, Asia and Southeast Asia. Well, tuk-tuks now are either motorized or pedaled. I had just arrived in uh, – Ho Chi Minh City, which used to be called Saigon, Saigon sure. right? And um, it was probably my first night, and I wanted to go out and see the city. So I came out in front of the little hotel uh, where me and El Mario were staying, and uh, I took the first uh, tuk-tuk, and he took me uh, out 
from the center of the city. And I said, don't we have to go that way? <laughs> and he was pedaling, not uh -oh. speaking too much. Yeah, I got the, is what you could imagine. Mm -hmm. The next thing that happened is that he was trying to buy me a girl. Uh, they were all over this part of town where he took me. I was not looking for a, a woman at that time. Uh, so I said, drive on. And the next thing I knew, a policeman that seemed to be his best friend uh, stopped me and miraculously found a roach in the tuk-tuk that I had nothing to do with. And they wanted to bring me to the police station. And I started screaming uh, instinctively and stupidly. I said, you're not taking me to any fucking police station. <laughs> uh, I was really rude and loud and probably risked my life. I scared them with my volume. Uh, but they were insisting upon taking me to the police station and that I had uh, put that uh, drug there. And we know the drug stories. And for my generation, was uh, Midnight Express. Oh, and, yeah, the Turkish uh, prison. And I didn't... Oh, you only need to see that movie once I didn't to see scare the, you straight. I didn't see the Turkish prison as being much different than the Vietnamese no. prison. So uh, uh, I was just about on my way there, and I... Uh, was a little prepared for this. I reached into my underwear and took out a $100 United States uh, dollar bill and I uh, gave it to the policeman and I was driven back into town. Uh, oh, and uh, so uh, my answer fit right up your alley, uh, <laughs> but uh, such is the way of the world. And yeah. uh, uh, it's a good idea to ride around uh, with a $100 bill in your underwear uh, when <laughs> you, you travel because one never knows do one. Have you, done much of, have you done much of Africa? Have you... I have not. I've only done the peripheries. of been to Cairo. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been to Alexandria because my favorite books are called The Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell, best friend of Henry Miller, also one of my favorite authors. Uh, so I went to Cairo and Alexandria when the borders of Israel were still flexible, yeah. 1999. Uh, and I've been to Morocco. I crossed the border when I, I did an educational conference in Andalusia, southern Spain. That's on uh, my list too, Morocco. Oh, it's cool. You have to go to this place called Chef Chawan. Chef Chawan. Yeah, it's the uh, 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 cannabis capital of Morocco. The plants are taller than you are. I just had uh, guests on my show on this on the Travel Tales that they they talked about that place. Chef Chawan. Yes, Chef Chawan. That's a it's just a no unique name. I remember it just now. And it's, they told me that uh, Marrakesh was overrated. Well, uh, just to they're just trying to hustle you. People Basically. have been there. It's like Kuta yeah. Beach in Bali or uh, Telegraph Avenue in San Francisco <laughs> right. in the Berkeley. You know, some places uh, used to be and now are just overdeveloped. But Chef Chowan, uh, you <laughs> arrive on a bus and you are in the middle of the old uh, Medina in uh, Arabic uh, uh, Morocco. And, uh, oh, it's beautiful. Uh, all that uh, uh, Moorish architecture from the... Uh, Muslims coming across North Africa in the sixth, in the seventh and eighth century, and ending up in southern Spain. Have you ever had any issues uh, being Jewish overseas? That uh, especially in Muslim countries, do you worry, or have you ever been worried? I have been worried when I got this Fulbright grant to go to uh, East Malaysia Islamic University. My American friend said, you crazy man, you, <laughs> what's a Jew boy from New York going to do in Islamic Malaysia shortly after 911? 
I just didn't want to pass up the opportunity. And I was invited uh, by university. I thought I'd be a little insulated. Uh, and it turned out two things. A, these people really didn't know what a Jew was. Uh, B, they identified and aligned themselves with their Arabic Muslim brothers. So uh, they hated Jews by osmosis, even though they didn't really know what one was. So I don't think they recognized me as being Jewish. They did recognize me as a non-Muslim who had brought my fiancé, my fingers are putting these <laughs> uh, air quotes on it, because I was told not to bring uh, a woman, an unmarried woman with me to Islamic Malaysia, but I did, but I called her my fiancé. But I think they intercepted some of my email to my Fulbright coordinator, and they realized that my fiancé was not only unmarried but just my girlfriend, and they would sarcastically constantly ask, how's your fiancé, uh, <laughs> Professor Trules, uh, condemning me, while at the same time they were allowed to have four wives each. And actually was only living with the last one and any of their previous children were lucky to have any child support. Yeah. So it's another, I'm not one for con, uh, conventional religion. There's just too much hypocrisy there. And uh, sure, I identify myself as a Jew, but more as culture, not as a religious practitioner. But uh, sometimes even being an American is a liability. Yeah, absolutely. And depending where you are, it's easier to say you're Canadian. <laughs> yes, <laughs> especially now. Now I, I I was saying the cruise ships. That's a joke I had because we always have so many Canadians. And so now I don't even waste any time. I just come off the plane wearing a hockey helmet. <laughs> just uh, that's it. I'm with them. I'm with them. They with the ones with the skates. Being an ugly American has always been a challenge uh, in the modern world. But yeah, now, I mean, there's now, a fifty-fifty shot to hate you wherever you go. But now with our president, I think it's gone. It's to gotten worse a, now, much worse. You know, and uh, I don't want to talk about it when I go. To, I was just in Australia, and for three days, and if one more person asked me about Trump, I was going to go crazy. I just, it's like I don't want to. I don't want just say I'm sorry and let's move on because I don't want to talk because they're fascinated. They can't believe it. You know, and, you know. So well, it's true. It's a it's a giant. Uh, punch in the eye of the whole world. But uh, what I like about travels, uh, since uh, we're on the Travel Tales podcast, <laughs> is it's the only time that I stop uh, looking at the news. I'm completely disconnected. It could be for a week or two months. I literally uh, have not gone out of my way to see one iota of news, no, it's great. nor have I missed it. No, not at all. It's you amazing. It's awesome. And I always say this about traveling, and I'm never more present than when I'm traveling. I'm where every day I'm, I'm noticing everything around me, and every self-help class here says the same thing. You have to live in the moment and, and be present. and Travel, travel and makes so you easy. do it. Yeah, and travel forces that hand, and uh, here I'm always thinking about something else. You know, and we look past what's in front of us all the time. And in travel, it's all there. And you're noticing everything. And uh, I'm never more present than when I am traveling. That's one of the only times you'll get an amen from me. <laughs> so in terms of you gave me a quiz on yours. So let's uh, give you a little quiz. Name a country that uh, you always talk up 
and tell people to go to that's maybe off the beaten track? I'd say uh, first off, well, a lot. But first off, I was going to say Southeast Asia, but that would not be Thailand or Bali. That would be uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. Uh, these are friendly people. Uh, wherever you go, no matter how far off the beaten track, people uh, in the tourist business speak English. So you'll always find you're lucky to be born at, uh, at this time uh, in the world. Uh, history where English is the predominant language. Absolutely. So uh, it's easy to travel and cheap in Southeast Asia. So I would highly recommend it. It's not dangerous. Uh, it's different than traveling in the Middle East. I love the Southern Ecuador. Uh, where We went to this. Uh, I just took the local indigenous buses through the Andes with the women in bowler hats and serapes. And my wife did not like that so much because she's from those yeah. indigenous <laughs> lands in Indonesia. But I came to America to get away from that. This is a challenge for us <laughs> to travel together. But I love staying in the longhouses and seeing how uh, the most, uh, the oldest and most natural way of living in those lands to learn its history and to see these indigenous tribes. And even though sometimes those people are dressing up for the tourist industry, you can still learn a lot and see how people used to live communally together, many families in one long house, how they were dependent on the sun and the moon and the sky and the uh, crops they grew. And uh, there were no iPhones and uh, emails and uh, I still haven't done Ecuador. I still haven't done it. Oh, Did you go to Galapagos while you were there? I went to the poor man's Galapagos uh, off um, Pisco. Pisco is a, a coastal town where you would take a ferry to uh, the Galapagos. But that's for tourists. That's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. I, it's, it's, it's magnificent. But those sea lions were also off the, on the Pisco <laughs> coast. And you get to have the Pisco sour. I'm sure. Yes, that's right. Sure. That's a famous uh, alcoholic drink. <laughs> Give me a country that you'd be okay if you never went back to. Cuba. Really? It's the only one. But now I think Cuba will be changing. But I went in 2009. I wanted to see it before uh, Fidel was gone. Uh, yeah, I went in 11, 2011. Oh, I went from Jamaica. Because, uh, yeah, I went from Cancun. Oh, there you go. That, those are the <laughs> two ways to conveniently go then. But uh, I went as a solo traveler with my wife. I mean, the two of us went. No tour groups. Uh, so... All we experienced was seeing ourselves as dollar bills. The country was so poor and desperate and angry and displaced. The doctors were driving cabs to try to make a living and all those cool fit cars from the 50s. Their uh, emission systems were completely busted and those were not cool cars. They just didn't allow Cubans to buy anything modern. And I found it a very uh, depressing country uh, where uh, I was just seen as a, a way to monetize. Now, when you travel, you're paying for hotels, you're paying for food, you are a traveler, tourist, whatever you can manage. But in Jamaica, right across the water where I went to, those people were equally poor, but they were joyous. 
And so I left Cuba to go back to Jamaica to travel around the island with three teenagers. <laughs> uh, and uh, we had a wonderful time and shared food. And here uh, in Cuba, it's the only country I could think of that I might say something like that about. Right. Jamaica can be dangerous, though. J- Jamaica's rough. Uh, Kingston is rough. Yeah. Uh, Kingston is the capital. Uh, they don't allow – they don't uh, – uh, Recommend or allow you to walk around by yourself, but get out uh, on the countryside where the uh, gorgeous. with the Rasta men and the people who believe in a, a, a reggae, uh, they grow their own crops and vegetables. They share it. They're they beautiful. Smoke it. They, they smoke it all the time. <laughs> they share the smoke, and it's it's not unsafe. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of beautiful. Did, uh, uh, give me one uh, in terms of we'll go to food now. Your favorite uh, country food-wise? I'm not a foodie. Okay. I like to eat. I like delicious food. And I think most places you can find delicious food. I'll go with you. Italy has great food. France has great food. I like Chinese food better than I like. My wife eats hot, spicy food. Yeah. I can't handle it. Oh, really? I love it. So I can't go to a lot of uh, good restaurants in Southeast Asia. I have to say, uh, hold the spice. And they go, okay, (laughs) pal. Okay, let's say your favorite deli in New York. Give us one recommendation. Used to be the Carnegie Deli, but now they they sold out. They, They should have closed that place that <laughs> used to have be the biggest packed oh, corned beef sandwiches. It was too much. Come it was. on. That was, it was oh, ridiculous. I used to get multiple go rye bread slices sure. and make several <laughs> sandwiches. Uh, but now it used to be the – I like the Second Avenue Deli. Um, I guess I'd have to go with the Second Avenue Deli. But I, I did really like the Carnegie before it became too gentrified and uh, You got an expensive. L.A. Deli? Uh, I guess I like the pastrami at uh, Langers. Langers at Langers, yeah. That's pastrami. And the corned beef is great too. Yeah. Now they've done the same thing at the Grand Street uh, Market, but it's overpriced sure. and it's just a, a tourist trap, you know. <laughs> so I'll stick with the Langers on Alvarado and Sixth, I think. Yeah, right by MacArthur Park. Yes. What was the craziest thing you ate overseas that you couldn't believe you ate? Any insects in Asia or any? Oh, sure, sure. I ate uh, grasshoppers in uh, Oaxaca in Mexico. So whatever they have, I will try without the hot sauce. (laughs) Sure. Uh, And uh, I think we ate things like frogs and scorpions and uh, you name it, uh, anything on legs. And with wings. (laughs) (laughs) Country you haven't been to yet, but always wanted to go. Well, I would say Russia, but if it works out, fingers crossed, I have a booking to uh, teach in uh, Moscow in uh, November. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, because my family's from there, I guess I want to see it. Moscow's a world capital. I know I'll be treated well because they're hiring me. Yeah, they say there's Moscow and St. Petersburg and then the rest of – because those are the two most diverse – if there's any diversity, which is not much – but it's the most international and cultural yes. diverse parts. And then there's the rest of Russia. Yeah. but you know? yes, It's like but there's New York and L.A. and then everybody <laughs> else. You know. um, so Russia and anywhere else that you've been dying to go to and never uh, made it? Uh, you must know and every traveler knows there is no way to see every place and everything no. in the world because uh, – 
it's just impossible. <laughs> uh, you know, you could go finer and finer and more micro and more micro. And uh, I haven't even been to Australia or New Zealand. You're kidding. Because it was English speaking. And yeah. I, I, I'm a little more exotic and want to find more I get things. That. But I do want to go there. New Zealand is gorgeous. New Zealand uh, I'm is sure, very, very pretty. I'm sure. Uh, I I haven't been to Prague. I wanted to go. I want to go to Prague. Um, Poland too. I uh, like Krakow a lot. I heard it's wonderful, and they have great theater there. You know, I'm mm -hmm. a theater practitioner, right? So I'd like to see some of the companies there. And I, I I've been to some uh, East European. I did uh, another Fulbright in. Uh, Bu uh, Bucharest, Romania, for okay. a while. So I saw all these uh, old Eastern Onion uh, dome churches. Yeah, I've never it, been to Bucharest. Oh, it's. I've been. Uh, to, I love Budapest. Budapest yeah, is fantastic. That's even more uh, Western yeah. than Bucharest. Yeah. Bucharest uh, more it was closed the, for so long. You yes, know. yes. But that's what was particularly wonderful about teaching uh, Romanian students in 2010 when I went. It was more like 1965 in America. It was the sex, drugs, uh, rock and roll, open mind, curiosity, hungry, hunger for what America represented back then. And these students were creative and uh, wonderful. What I do find in Eastern Europe, uh, much more so than Western Europe, but they, you know, they call you know, Western Europe now old Europe and, and um, in the former Soviet bloc countries – what I find, at least my personal opinion, amongst the young people, that they're much more positive and uh, much more excited about the future. They're just looking ahead. They're, like they're, they're brushing off the past, and they're just excited about what's to come, whereas the people in Spain and Italy and France, the young people are just angry. They're over it. They, they're, they're just resigned to the fact that their economy stinks, and we're going we're to have it worse than our parents. And whereas in Eastern Europe, they're, we're going to have it better than our parents. We're going to travel more. We're going to, they're so excited. Whereas in, you know. I, I'm afraid that's quite true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's like what you said about the immigrants, you know, uh, a new family, a new person with a family coming here to America works the hardest and is upwardly mobile and sends money back to their country. Well, these people coming under the uh, out from under the thumb of communism, which turned out to be a lot more true than I ever expected to discover from all those stereotypes we were taught uh, back in the 50s and 60s. But that was a repressive society. So so now uh, self-expression and creativity, the very things that I cherish and teach, are really uh, uh, absorbed and uh, uh, consumed there with such passion. The young people are alive and passionate and will have better lives than their parents. Well, you've seen and we both have seen so much uh, technology change our way of life and especially with travel. What's your favorite piece of technology that's helped travel the most for you? And what's a piece of technology you wish never existed? Yeah. Um, I like to have an internet connection when I travel because I started my uh, e-travels with e-truels were literally, literally emails from little internet shops in sometimes very slow connected places back to my friends. So – uh, yeah. The phone it, is an amazing thing that you can have it anywhere. I, I didn't have a I didn't have a smartphone back in two thousand. Oh, me neither. I, yeah, I went to these internet shops with yeah, the, the desktops. Yeah, 
Uh, but it was a way to connect and share your journey with somebody, particularly if you were traveling by yourself. It was a, a, a fun, communicative, artistic thing to do. And then as the technology developed and you could add pictures and have a blog and a podcast, wow, uh, I enjoy it. Uh, I think it's a, a, a new development of our time in history of civilization that – uh, you can connect to so many places all over the planet, and you have access to the entire history of mankind on a little device. What do you think the downside of all of it is? Uh, over, Will we become oh, less human in a way? Yeah, 100% true. Overconnected. You used to write a, a letter. It took two weeks to get there. You waited three or a weeks or a month or a, a while to get it back. Uh, and that was frustrating but normal. Now you get 50 or how many emails in your box and you can barely keep up with them. And that's supposed to be a convenience, which it is, but it's an overburden and uh, too much time on Facebook and social media. Uh, it's uh, an, a dehumanizing component of the technology. It's not a great asset. In traveling over the last you know, almost 50 years, I guess, have you noticed a difference in – I guess, Americans from that first uh, car ride you took across country. I mean, it couldn't have been easy being – I know we all watched Easy Rider, being a long hair, going to some of these parts of the country. Did you get any that, harassment or anything like that back then? Well, you asked another good question. I never told that story. Uh, I, I will. Uh, but uh, the country has changed. I think we talked about this on, the, yeah. on my show. I could drive across country. I went up and down America for, to all those cities from New York. Uh, hitchhike? You could pick no, up I, was dri I was driving. But the you picked up hitchhikers. Yes, I did. I did. But I drove the Tempest, and I went to Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Tallahassee, Florida, uh, Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. I just went into any town I ever heard of. I didn't know anybody. And I'd get there at dusk after day driving. I'd roll down the window to... The first person I saw, a little like asking my wife, uh, who the, a woman for directions turned out to be my wife. Well, I didn't marry any of these other people. But I would say, where's the long hair part of town? And I had long <laughs> Jufro locks. Right. And they would send me to the coffee shop in the uh, Greenwich Village yeah. of the town. Right. And I would Hopefully there's a university somewhere nearby. Sometimes it, was, yeah. sometimes it was the university. And I'd walk into the shop and I'd say – Hi, my name is Trules. I have no place to stay tonight. You see my hair? You know, I'm one of you. It's the time. It's 1970. Sure. And they all brought me home with free places to stay. And after a while, too much weed because uh, I didn't want it after a while. It just made everything the same. So, But, but there was a counterculture then. And – now there's a culture of interconnected technology uh, 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 entrepreneurs, you know, so it's a different time. You'd have culture. it all set up. You'd have a, you know, before you even rolled into town nowadays. Yes, it's like, yes. yeah, we talked online for months, you know, with, hey, it's good to see you finally in person. This is a really significantly different time, and that's only 50 years ago. So, you know, the, the timeline and the <laughs> crunch of human evolution just gets on a shorter and shorter leash. What about the environment in terms of what you've seen? change it's well i mean around the world it's tough i mean i i mean i see it mostly in plastic everywhere and like in beaches the beaches in bali it's sad you know when you see the amount of garbage that's there i mean i'm wondering the effect of 
what was it like going in 1970, going across country? I mean, I mean, this is pre catalytic converter. We know that much. Yes, but, that's, um, that's true. Uh, the, the country, uh, either I was an unwashed uh, countercultural guy. I did, I, there wasn't a lot of garbage or dirt in America in 1970. But uh, I promise in Indonesia in 1970 and in 2017, there's a lot of garbage because of the education and the culture. They are in turn uh, trained to recycle. They are in turn uh, trained not to throw their newspapers and plastic and food anywhere in the sea, on the streets. Uh, there are chickens and dog, wild dogs walking around in the third world. And it will take uh, a long time or it will never happen that uh, the consciousness is raised to a, the, what we call a first world level where we think that uh, recycling and uh, keeping a clean environment is valuable. This does not happen in many places in the world. Mm -hmm. Not, not uh, then and not now. If you could wave your magic wand, we'll wrap this up in, in a minute here, but if you could ma wave a magic wand, uh, say you're king of the world, you're God <laughs> now, what would, do, what would be the first thing you changed? What do you think the, the number one pressing issue is? Oh, I'd be... Sillily optimistic and uh, think uh, I was John Lennon, try to carry out John Lennon's give peace a chance and end wars and st people stop fearing their neighbors because actually the Arabs and the Jews have the same noses and live, <laughs> li lived in the same cities, you know, so stop fearing the other and know that you can stay in the whole, in the spare bedroom or on the floor of your neighbor and your neighbor is not your enemy and that we could trust and not think that money and success were, yeah, I would go back to my hippie values, even though I wasn't a hippie, I believed in the values of those time before blue jeans were commercialized into <laughs> uh, whatever brands they were. And when long hair was grown as a statement of uh, rebellion and freedom, uh, because those are two things I bought into and I still believe in. And if I could pass them on with my magic wand, I think we'd uh, all live in a healthier, more friendly, peaceful world. What do you think all this travel has taught you about yourself and about uh, people in general and America? Those are probably three different questions, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'll try. Uh, I think it's taught me that people have a lot more in common with each other than differences, uh, that we're feared to uh, fear and hate the other because they wear a different dress or have a different skin color. But like I said, uh, all humans care about their offspring and progeny and raising children and giving them a future uh, a better future than they have and putting food on their table and in their mouths and getting a good night's sleep and feeling safe and uh, in transcendence, whether that believe, uh, means believing in God or believing uh, being connected to the land and animus uh, token, uh, totem uh, 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 gods, that we have a lot more in common with each other. Uh, as humans than the media and our fears put in our mind. What I've learned about myself, uh, I can't uh, – that that I'm an American who's not very proud of my government and my country, particularly growing up in the 60s. 
but I have a lot to be grateful for. I have a lot of freedom. I can bring my new friend, uh, Mike Siegel, over to a studio <laughs> in Echo Park in the middle of the day. I have enough money to live on. Uh, I, am, I am a member of a very small percentage of privileged people who have good health and enough to live on, particularly when you travel the world and see so many other people not in that position. So it's made me grateful, and that's a good thing. You asked me one more thing. America. It's made me see my country both as a meddler and uh, materialist and interferer in uh, the politics and uh, lives of so many other humans on the planet. But it's also seen me, uh, allowed me to see my country as the land of opportunity that my wife and her immigrant uh, friends still come to and where she can still change her life experience and send money back to her family. So life is complicated and contradictory. <laughs> so, and that's uh, one of the things that uh, an artist and uh, hopefully a podcaster can bring to the table. Uh, things are not one dimensional, all black or white. Uh, it's the interesting shades of gray and the contradictions that make life interesting. Well, speaking of the podcast, this is the point now where you can uh, plug the podcast, give the people uh, your uh, handles, your uh addresses and where they can find you. Well, I hope you throw this into the top of the show with your introduction, <laughs> yeah. because we haven't mentioned it till now. But I'm Eric Trules, and I'm a host and chief storyteller of the E-Travels with E-Trules podcast. <laughs> uh, you can find it on my homepage, Eric Trules. T-R-U-L-E-S. That's E-R-I-C-T-R-U-L-E-S dot com forward slash podcast. <laughs> and you can get to all those uh, episodes in the library because uh, hopefully if you hear this interview on Mike's uh, show, you'll uh, try to listen yeah. to some of my travel stories, which I think are unique. And we haven't talked much about it, but I think they're unique because they are immersive I work with an original music composer and a sound designer, and uh, you actually are taken to the chicken squawks and gunshots and uh, train travels and airplanes and airport sounds right in the episode. And I don't give any shout outs to discount uh, travel or <laughs> hotels or, or ways to travel. I, uh, I tell my own travel stories. And I hope by being uh, honest and true uh, and hopefully a little insightful and funny that other people can relate to these stories and realize some of the things I've been talking about, that we have a lot of things in common and that uh, travel can be full of adventure and misadventure and it's expansive and uh, – uh, and fun. I was impressed by it. It was a real it's storytelling. I mean, you're a storyteller. So, folks, if you want to hear uh, uh, good stories from uh, a good storyteller, uh, tune into Eric's podcast. And uh, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, it was a good match. I'm glad you came. <laughs> and uh, thank uh, shout out to Scott Barber at the Barbershop yes, Studio. Scott, way to go. Thank you, Mike. Right. Yeah, thank you, Eric. The order is rapidly fading. And the first one now will later be last For the times they are a-changin' 